Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles. Here for another episode of This is Revolution podcast, and I have to greatly apologize. We've only done this one other time, and I don't remember exactly when that was. But there's a little button I have to hit that says go live. I hit everything else but that button. And what happens, even if we're not live, we can see the chat on the screen. And what was funny was what we were talking about, Alex and I, because we thought the show was going on, a lot of you guys were saying, and then eventually Dr. Claw says, is it just you or is this not live? It's not on yet. And of course, I'm ignoring my phone and MT is trying to get a hold of me to say, oh, Jason, you didn't do what's going on. Well, sorry. Please don't come for me. If you're new to the channel, this never happens. <laughs> if you're a returning subscriber, please stay. <laughs> it won't happen again. <laughs> I promise. Also, uh, I was like originally, I was like a few minutes late because I was on with Good friend Ben Burgess, as tomorrow we will be in West Hollywood at the Rainbow. Another commie divorce dude Valentine's Day. We're still commies. We're still divorced. And we're still single. So we said, let's do it again. It's a good time out. The Rainbow is a great rock and roll, almost history museum. The food is actually rather delicious. If you want to yell at me about being tardy to these things. <laughs> if you want to yell about music debates. If you want to yell about shows we've had. There's no better time and place to do it. We'll be again at the Rainbow 6 p.m. tomorrow, Valentine's Day. Good times. Now let's get to the topic at hand because Alex was cooking before I realized that we were not live. <laughs> Fuck. And I can't tell if he's looking at me with disgust because he has also the most deadpan sense of humor and his new look. He looks like Ming the Merciless. <laughs> so imagine Ming the Merciless from Flash Gordon is staring at you in a virtual green room shooting daggers <laughs> Steve says stop letting them white folks make you late to your own show man black ass <sighs> that is my bad so I apologize Steve Steve on behalf of you and the rest of the 15 black people that watch this show I apologize. As many of you know, recently, former Fox News cultural warrior and commentator Tucker Carlson went to Russia and spoke with President Vladimir Putin. Carlson attempted to market the interview as a one of a kind, a rare jewel of journalism, as he put it. No American have ever, no, have even attempted to speak to Putin, but him. Carlson also touted the fact that he was being allowed in the country as if Cold War tensions were still high. And the very fact that he is American makes him an enemy of the Russian state. But is that claim true? Carlson and his pro-Russian takes have made him a bit of a favorite of Putin when it comes to American political pundits. Also, many American journalists have attempted to interview Putin, but were denied. Carlson wasn't risking his safety by doing the interview, but was this interview a GOP hit job designed to weaken the Biden campaign in a heated election season? Or was this simply Carlson marketing to his base, conservative Americans that hate Joe Biden and the Democratic Party? All this being said, the war in Ukraine is still going on. What can we take away from this interview? I have my good friend and Russian and Soviet history scholar, Alexander Herbert, here to go over this with us. 
I also want to add that after the show, when we go to the champagne room, we'll be doing our first of a multi-part series on Lennon that Alex has been putting together on his Substack as well. So if you want to join Alex's Substack, wherever you are watching or listening to the show on the audio only podcast, there are links in the description. Also, if you're listening to the show on Apple, subscribe to the channel and you have access to the champagne room. All that out of the way, let's bring in the man that watched this interview, took notes, was excited for this interview, my good friend and historian, Alexander Herbert. Oh, Ming. Got that Ming look going on, dog. Tonight, all right? I mean, if that was the look you're going for, I was like, it's either Gigi Allen or Ming, and I'm really hoping it's Ming. Yeah, no, I don't do Gigi Allen. Yeah, see, it's Ming. Yeah, fuck that guy. I don't do that doo doo shit. You know what I mean? (laughs) 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 Well, first of all, I'm sorry. You were cooking, as the young people say. You know, you asked me about why the Ukraine war started, and I went on for 30 minutes about Rurik in 883. <laughs> and people missed the entire explanation that I had for this. Well, I'll start off again. I'll ask the same question again. And I think now you're probably more comfortable and you'll probably give a much better answer. Um, now, I also want to preface this by saying originally the show was going to be your Lennon history, and we decided to change things around after the interview happened because you had wrote a post and you were like um, a multi-part post where you showed Tucker Carlson doing his thing like, I'm going to Russia. No one else is going to Russia. Yeah. And, uh, and you know why I'm going to Russia? Because I love America. And like, what? I'm sure he does. <laughs> and, uh, and so you were saying that Tucker Carlson was based for doing this interview because you know when, when usually when Americans do these interviews, they're very biased and extremely edited and Putin doesn't like to do him. And he, he has turned down uh, several journalists that wanted to interview him. So what were your thoughts when you first saw that Tucker Carlson was going to do this interview? What was your first thoughts? Well, my first thoughts were, like everybody else probably, I don't think that Tucker Carlson is the right person to do it. I mean, there's obvious reasons, as you, as you said, that he got the okay to do it it's because he's an idiot right and putin knows that putin is a very very smart man i don't think that we should um uh, discredit his intelligence at all oh uh, for for his age he's definitely smarter than the president that we have right now in terms of wit um but the reason why i said it was based is because Tucker carlson does have this awareness at least that the mainstream media outlets in the United States and in the West uh, have been declined the interview from Putin um, because those who have interviewed him in the past and those who have uh, applied to interview him, um, they work for a certain media outlet and they're trying to promote a certain narrative. And so while everybody is saying, you know, Tucker Carlson is promoting the narrative of Putin, it's absolutely correct. I agree with that 100%. But, you know, if somebody from MSNBC or CNN had interviewed mm-hmm. uh, Putin as well, that would have also had a narrative. And so for my purpose, you know, I've seen the interviews that Putin has done with, you know, the mainstream Western media. I wanted to see him do an interview with somebody who he did view as a useful idiot. I wanted to see Putin say what he wanted to say uh, without the the liberal editorialism, right? I wanted to see the 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 Tucker Carlson editorialism, um, which is probably more in line with what Putin wanted to say in a genuine way anyway, even if you know we don't believe everything that was said, but we can get into that too. So that's why I thought it was based, right? Because mm-hmm. I thought that Tucker Carlson saying straight out there that the Western media, is corrupt. It's funded by the same people. Um, they have the Western media. You know, Zelensky is all over the news every week. He has become a celebrity in chief. Mm-hmm. I think that all of that is true. Um, and so, you know, Tucker Carlson could have just said, I'm going to sit back and let Putin talk for two hours. And I would have been like, hell yeah, that's based. That should happen. Americans need to hear what uh, Putin has to say even if, again, we don't agree with it. 
You're trying to keep a straight face. Um, so yeah, the show. It, 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 <laughs> the reverse Hitler mustache. That's a real thing, dog. <laughs> that's because I'm so anti-fascist that I can't grow the fascist. You can't mustache. even grow the fascist one. It won't even happen. It's like it's like Joe Dirt's facial hair just grows in all white trashy like. For real. That's um, the show starts off with Tucker Carlson trying to ask the tough question first. He he's you know hey why'd you invade the Ukraine and Putin does this thing where as you said earlier in the original show that we thought was live um, that you had never seen an interview where someone was so overmatched what did you think of the Tucker Carlson question and Putin's history lesson response. Yeah, I had never seen an interview where the the scales of power were so uneven. And and like I said, you know, originally, my favorite moment was when Putin pointed out that Tucker Carlson wanted to work for the CIA, and he said like, um, we should thank God that they didn't let you in. It was like, damn, because Putin had worked for the the Soviet uh, secret services, and so it was clearly him saying like, look, I did what you wanted to do, and now you're here interviewing me, you know. Um, that was just one of those moments. The other moment was the, the referring to the moment that you're talking to the beginning where Carlson comes straight out and asks him about the Ukraine war. And Putin says, as I understand it, you went to school for history. So let me give you a history lesson. But, but Carlson says is trying to say, basically, you invaded Ukraine because of NATO and the U.S. You like tell me that you did that. Yes or no. Mm hmm. And Putin says, I never said that. And Carlson's like, but I have the notes. Putin goes, wait a minute. So what did you think of that? Yeah. So, um, again, I think uh, to go back to um, the sort of uh, intelligence of, of Putin, I, I do think that, you know, certain people, I don't know, you know, when you talk to some people that are well-read and well-knowledged, a lot of them will go back in history and pretty far back in the past to explain something that's happening today. And it does seem circuitous, right? It seems like they're they're talking about something that's irrelevant, but people do have the ability to tie these things together. Um, and, and I think that's what Putin was trying to do. And as a historian, like referring to the archives and even giving Tucker Carlson archival documents to be like, well, if you don't believe me, it's in the archives. Um, I think is also a, one of those, again, strongman kind of defenses. The problem is that only Putin has access to those archives. The Western scholars aren't allowed to view them, and some Russian scholars aren't even allowed to look at them. Um, and so, you know, you could say that it's in the archives, or there's multiple times in the interview where Putin says, why don't you ask your leaders? But, mm. you know, we know full well that, you know, no matter what, you can ask the leaders and our leaders won't say anything. So, um, but we can get into that. I, I think that in general, mm -hmm. um, well, in general, I think that the, the, the first part, the historicism that Putin gives going all the way back to, uh, Prince Rurik and his invitation to Russia to, to lead Russia from Scandinavia um, I didn't see really that much wrong with this kind of ancient to early modern and medieval history. Um, the, the thing is, the thing to keep in mind is that the categories that we use today, like nation and even ethnicity, they don't really exist back then. Of course, there are different ethnicities, but people don't understand them as such. Yeah. And so for Putin, the basis of Ukrainian and Russian uh, brotherhood or or as he calls it, the soul, rests in their mutual adoption of orthodoxy, in their mutual history of being of Rurik and uh, equally being uh, uh, converted to orthodox Christianity by uh, Vladimir in the 900s. And that's true. I mean, as far as we know, that's all true. There's something called the Russian Chronicles that you can look up and read some of these stories. And some of the stories are really badass. There's like stories about Princess Olga having one of her enemies pecked to death by birds in a grave pit. Like there's some really cool medieval stories in there, but but the main ones to take away are about Vladimir Christianizing Russia, 
And and again, these aren't there's no categories of Ukrainian and Russian at the time. They are Rus. They are they are, you know, the common people of that region. So I didn't have a problem with that historicism in the ancient period. Um, but for Putin, that's the that's kind of his basis, his defense of the fact that they are brothers, right? We all converted to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Then shit got weird, right? Because in the West, you had, uh, in the West of, of Kiev and Novgorod, you had um, the Polish and Lithuanian Catholics. And in the East, you had uh, the Mongolians that came in and conquered most of Russia. Uh, but left some cities free or virtually free, like Kiev and Novgorod, the free city. Um, and so what Putin was inferring from that is that this influence of Poland on the western border of the former lands of the Kievan Rus is the first instance of this forced conversion of people who were of the same Russian background. Um, so again, for him, this is done through religion. The Polish people were, or the Polish Lithuanian empire was determined to convert the people in present day Western Ukraine to Catholicism. And this is where you get, um, uh, kind of religions that, that faiths that lie in between Orthodoxy and Catholicism, like Ruthenian, um, which is the old word for Ukrainian more or less, um, but they have their own church, right? Uh, you get Protestants uh, later on after the Reformation, they start to enter through the Western borderlands. Um, but in general, that Western part of Ukraine is where you get a whole hodgepodge of people who are Slavic, but they differentiate themselves based on their religion, not on their ethnicity, not on their nationality. Again, those terms don't exist, but based primarily on their religion. Uh, but for Putin, that's important for us, maybe not so important, but uh, for Putin, that's the important part. Um, was he trying to say that that's a justifying cause? He was trying to say that uh, more or less because these Ukrainians on the Western Bank uh, were being converted forcefully by a foreign entity that is Poland and Lithuania, um, that that was unfair, right? That was a form of like, early modern imperialism in a way uh and that that's the first stage of this western forced conversion politically religiously socially culturally of people in ukraine um to to point out that this is a process that's been going on for a long time but that ukrainian nation nationhood uh nationalism didn't exist at this time um uh and i think that that is important and he's not wrong either it's important to, to point out that he's really not wrong about this that um that uh you know those people in western ukraine uh because they're on that borderland because they're they're constantly facing poland because of the vacillating um borders between poland and russia particularly after moscow casts off the mongolians um it does call for a lot of political maneuvering, forced cultural conversion um, and uh, mistreatment. Because he does say at one point that the Poles mistreated the people that lived in that region. And that's true too. But to be fair, you know, Russians also, or Muscovites also mistreated people that lived in that region too. So is this justice from centuries past? Well, there's that point where Tucker Carlson asked him, you know, if we're if we're going to go back to the 16th century borders, mm-hmm. you know, isn't that justification for everyone else? And Putin says, well, no, not really. And and mm-hmm. I do think that um, to infer that is, again, not seeing the forest from the trees, because what Putin is arguing here is that there is a historical basis of this region as being contentious, not just contentious, but um vulnerable to influence from the west mm-hmm. um and so he kind of jumps he jumps from the early modern period to the modern period uh to the eve of the first world war and he says yeah. that uh um 
on the eve of the First World War, Austria, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, who also had holdings in present-day Ukraine, were, as natural enemies of Russia, were uh, encouraging Ukrainian nationalism as a way of subverting the consolidation of those regions by Russia. And there's some truth to that, too. But I will say that that's not the only root of Ukrainian nationalism. There were, of course, intellectuals uh, in Ukraine who were also articulating a Ukrainian nationalism. But the important part is that this Ukrainian nationalism was not based on anti-Russianness. It was based on difference from Muscovite Russian, but difference in, in sort of commonality, recognizing the same shared history, but saying that, you know, because of centuries of, of uh, imperialism, I guess you could say, or not really kind of colonialism on the Polish part and on the Russian part and this back and forth vacillation, that we have diverged, we've become different. Um, and, but still recognizing the, I guess, fraternity of ethnic Russians and ethnic Ukrainians. And there is a point, of course, where Putin says um, that to this day, there are, you know, one, well, I think he says one in three Russians have a relative or somebody that lives in Ukraine, right, to, to kind of point out the connection between the two peoples. And this goes, this, this is as old as, you know, it's older than the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. No, I, I I got that, but you know I don't know if Tucker Carlson got that because he kept trying to you know go back to the but that doesn't have anything to do two years ago with that look where uh, he always looks like uh, he just walked in on his mom blowing Santa Claus like <laughs> yeah he did that like <laughs> yeah like if that's your intense face uh, he's got the like bent eyebrow it's thing, not man. a good intense face man like. It's probably his cum face too, but anyway. Uh... <laughs> but anyway, so so we're on the eve of the First World War, right? And and what Putin is saying is that this is a critical moment for the articulation of Ukrainian nationalism, and he's right. But he's not just right for Ukraine; he's right for everybody. You know, the Baltic states are articulating their own nationalism. Uh, Russia is articulating a new nationalism that is not just premised on Tsardom, but it's premised on uh, uh, Russian as the dominant ethnicity in the empire. Um, the, you know, Eric Hobsbawm wrote about how mm -hmm. this period of um, uh, on the eve of the war is the moment of nationalism, right? It's the clash of empires. The empires collapse because of nationalism. So he's right that there is an articulation of Ukrainian nationalism, but I don't think that it's any different than the rest of Europe. Um, and then you have, obviously, you get to the Bolshevik Revolution, in which um, he, this is, again, we were talking about this before we went live, but this is where Putin really shows, demonstrates to all of those internet leftists that he really does not have a socialist bone in his body anymore. Mm -hmm. um, he, he might, and we get into this, we talk about China and stuff like that, but he might have uh, a certain materialist understanding of geopolitics and the way the world works, but he also has some serious misgivings about how the Soviet Union constituted its nationalities policy. Um, and so he says, you know, that I think he said that, I don't know why, but uh, Lenin recognized the national sovereignty of the Ukrainian people. Well, he did that because you have to understand that as anti-imperialists that socialists are, the idea is to collapse an empire, right? And an empire is based on what they called national chauvinism. And the chauvinism of the Russian empire was Russian national chauvinism. And so the idea was that if you are to destroy the empire, reconstitute a new socialist state based on the Soviets, then you have to uh, disempower Russian chauvinism from the rest of the country uh and so and so denigrating the role of russia within the soviet union was something that was built into the early years of soviet power for a long time the the uh, uh russian socialist republic didn't even have a dominant role in in the political structure of the soviet union and what that meant 
and this is, you know, Lenin, for his part, isn't really a theorist on uh, nationalities policy at the time. I mean, the person that was in charge of theorizing nationalities, as some of your viewers might know, was Stalin. Stalin is from Georgia. And in his early years, Stalin was a Georgian nationalist, a Georgian socialist nationalist. Later on, he gets rid of that Georgian nationalism. Um, but at this point, as a non-Russian leader in within the party, to some extent, he's put in charge of theorizing how should this new socialist state approach nationalities. Mm -hmm. um, and they come up with the idea that, okay, we'll, we'll recognize um, cultural particularism, we'll grant sovereignty to the non-Russian peoples of the former empire, we'll give them the decision to join the Soviet Union if they would like to. Um, that's Lenin's idea, right? Mm -hmm. Lenin says, if the Ukrainian socialists and the Ukrainian government, the Rada, doesn't want to join the Soviet Union, that's fine. Let them go their own way. And he says the same thing about Georgia, too. He says, if the Georgian Mensheviks don't want to join the Soviet Union, that's fine. Let them go their own way. Stalin is the one that says, no, no, no. If we don't do something about this, then we are leaving those areas open to, we're leaving them vulnerable to Western influence. In Georgia, you had the enroachment of the British Empire in the Caucasus. And Stalin understood that if we don't march into Georgia and take it on behalf of the Soviet Union, then Britain will do that, right? And they will have an enemy in our southern border. And he recognized the same thing with Ukraine, too. He said, if we don't more or less force Ukraine, our fraternal, you know, Slavic Russian brothers mm -hmm. to join the Soviet Union, then we're going to have those capitalists, those pesky capitalists at our door, right, in our in our own historic heartland. Can I ask you the what if question? Because it's already happened, right? Good or bad decision? On the part of Stalin? Yes. Oh, man, it's a tricky. It's tricky. So <laughs> historians try not to deal in these what ifs, but I uh, can't say that I, I haven't imagined. Um, it's important to it's important for your listeners to know that the Soviet invasion of Georgia happened much uh, against the wishes of Lenin. It happened at the behest of Stalin. And the same can sort of be said for Ukraine, but with more wide uh, support from the Soviets, from the Bolshevik leadership, mostly because Ukraine had kind of devolved into civil war. It became sort of the hotbed for the whites, the so-called so bourgeois army. Uh, and it also became a hotbed for the so-called Black Army. Um, that's where, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know Nestor Machno and all of them. Yeah. And so it just became a cauldron of civil war. And so at, at one point, the Bolsheviks recognized, okay, enough's enough. Like, these are the Russian people in Ukraine are at risk if we don't do something. Um, and so they took it but they took it in the understanding that they would create the ukrainian socialist republic as its own individual socialist republic separate from russia right and this is what putin says this is why he says stalin created ukraine mm -hmm. there's not like i you can kind of see why he would infer that from a very simplistic understanding of what's going on but um it's much more complicated than just saying Stalin created Ukraine. Stalin gave a reason why Ukraine should be a part of the Soviet Union. Um, but, you know, the Bolsheviks had recognized Ukrainian nationhood, nationality for some time. And Ukrainians had understood it as well. Um, Don't read that. I'm encyclopedia. <laughs> No, I just, this is it, man. This is all I know. This is all he I, knows. Yeah, I don't know anything else. I, I you know, I, I don't know how to make a taco. For <laughs> um, but, but, but seriously, um, I, I, I bring, I asked that question because, again, I think having history people on is, is actually really important. Um, because sometimes there's context left out of things that people understand. And, I really still believe we're in a phase where if you just have a hammer and sickle on stuff and you want to be a leftist, that the hammer and sickle is all you need. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I think that there's Maybe. a lot of romanticizing some of these Bolshevik figures for some for good, some for bad. Um, I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about them. I think that there are even leftists who will accept Putin's explanation for Ukraine, but then kind of filter it through a leftist lens to to like defend it without yeah. knowing without knowing what I'm telling you now. There were yeah. reasons why uh, Georgia, Ukraine were more or less invaded in, in the way that they were incorporated into the Soviet Union. But, you know, then Putin skips on to the eve of the Second World War. And I'm sure that your viewers have seen the liberal media make, uh, make all these posts about Putin says that Poland is to blame for the beginning of the Second World War. Um, I didn't I didn't read what Putin said in that way. Uh, so Putin rightly points out that in 1934, there's a non-aggression pact that is signed between Poland and Nazi Germany. And the non-aggression pact is just that. It's it's a it's an agreement that we won't have any aggression. But um, as Hitler has his eyes set on Czechoslovakia. Uh, he also has his eyes set on the free city of Danzig. And the Poles did not want to give up the free city of Danzig. Um, they wanted to keep it a neutral city. And so for Putin, he says, that was the reason why the war started. And this is it, it's a very, very fine line of, of difference of interpretation here. So on the one hand, you have the liberal view, which is saying that um, that was Putin saying that Poland started the war. But on the other hand, this is Putin saying that Poland refused to appease Nazi Germany. And when you think about it, we all know that, right, the Great Britain, France, they all appeased Germany for a long time. Mm -hmm. they're, they're willing to let Hitler do, you know, certain things, remilitarize, take the Rhineland back, redevelop the Rhineland etc appeasing him breaking those rules from the the treaty of versailles at the end of the first world war and poland refused to do that over danzig is that poland starting the second world war no in my opinion that's poland doing what the rest of the world should have done a lot earlier right standing its ground and saying no no no, we, we we're not we don't agree to this um and and so according to putin the war started and Ukraine became the battleground state of the war. Mm -hmm. um, I think that on the one hand, that is Putin saying that, you know, it's the political maneuvering of Germany and Poland historically that have screwed over this part of the world. So um, I don't think that he's blaming Poland for the start of the war as much as he's blaming the West for using that part of the world as its sort of cannon fodder, as its, as its battleground, historically, just like it had in the early modern period and just like it did in the medieval period. So he's pointing out a, a historical pattern mm. of, of this region being systemically pulled from the West despite its fraternal brotherhood with mm. Russia. Do you think he answered the question, though? of why he invaded the Ukraine. No, of course not. I don't I, I think that he has multiple reasons for that. I think that on the one hand he has this fraternal brotherhood, right, mm -hmm. of between Ukraine and Russia that it's his duty to protect and to see that Russians in Ukrainian territory are protected. I think that he does to a certain extent believe in the uh, the uh, Nazification, neo-Nazification of Ukraine, which we can get into the, his, the basis for that too. Um, and I do think that he has certain uh, uh, understandings of, of NATO. Um, and, you know, you could kind of tell in some of the parts where he was talking about NATO and in the initial collapse of the Soviet Union and his first efforts to try to um, uh, uh, create deals with the West. You can kind of tell that th they did push him around a lot. You got to think, Putin, when he came to power in 2000, he was young. Mm -hmm. They thought he was impressionable. They had they had um, shamed the image of Yeltsin so much mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. that you know the the stereotype of a Russian leader being an alcoholic buffoon kind of became ingrained in most of the West. And so then you have this young, ambitious Putin come to power, and you got to figure with with a destroyed economy, by the way, absolutely decimated mm-hmm. economy, you got to figure that there was a lot of pushing around that happened on the part of the United States um, and its NATO allies. And so he he points out these multiple instances in which he'll talk to a president about, you know, a strategic defense initiative. And the president might say, yeah, it sounds like a good idea to me. But then the president's cabinet were the ones that, you know, tell him not in your lifetime. That's not ever going to happen. There's a part where he says that, where Tucker Carlson asked him, you know, did you ever ask about joining NATO? And he said, um, essentially, that like Russia would have joined NATO, but it was made clear to him that that wouldn't, that was not a possibility. Um, by- do you think? Do you think that's because there was too many Cold War people in the cabinet? You know, Cuba makes a joke on this show as someone that's spent a little bit of time on on Capitol Hill, that uh, or DC rather. Uh, but for a lot of those decision makers, it's still 1996. So do you think that when Putin comes to power in the late 90s, early 2000s, or do you think the year 2000 he comes to power, right? Yeah. Uh, there's still holdovers, Cold War holdovers in some of these cabinet positions? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that most American politics are still in this kind of late 90s, early 2000s period, if that... Um, and I, I think that Putin is sincere. If you look at the track record of Russia in the early 2000s, from about 2000 to 2008, before the first offenses in Georgia really kicked off, you can see a lot of initiatives on the part of Russia to try to um, uh, es- establish relations with the West. They, had, they even had a sitting member in, uh, I think, the IMF. Right. They weren't a, they weren't a member of the IMF, but they had a sitting member in there. Um, there. There was no other period in Russian history throughout the Cold War and even before that and even since that, that Russia had made certain uh, attempts to reach out and reconcile itself with the West. And the, the clearest example of that right, was when Dmitry Medvedev was president and he came to the United States and he met with Barack Obama. Remember, they they went to like some sandwich shop in um, Washington, D.C., and Barack Obama was showing him his favorite burger or some something like that. I mean, that that was indicative of this effort to really try to 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 find some kind of middle ground that changed after 2008. It changed with, um, as Putin points out, um, events that happened in Ukraine, but also events that happened in Georgia uh, where. According to Putin, I think the NATO expansion had happened despite the um, despite the the promises that it wouldn't happen. Although I think those promises are probably more verbal than anything else. And so there there are like three moments, according to Putin, where Russian approach to the West and foreign policy changed. The first one was after the presidency of Yeltsin, when the media had lambasted Yeltsin so much and and made him look like a drunk fool. And there's a moment where Putin says, I can assure you, he wasn't a fool. He knew what was going on. There's also this moment that Putin points out in the late 1990s in Chechnya, uh, and that is the CIA's involvement in the Caucasus and the wars that happened in the Caucasus. And Putin says, I have archival sources that, that indicate that the CIA was involved in trying to overthrow Russian power in the Caucasus. Um, of course, Carlson says, well, why don't you put those documents out there to show the world? And Putin says, why? What about it? It wouldn't make a difference. And then the third moment was <laughs> the third moment was the uh, period where Putin tried to offer a uh, strategic missile defense system mm-hmm. with Russia and the United States working together. Um, and the proposal was shot down by the, the U.S. president and kind of viewed as a joke, right? They didn't take him serious at all. Um, and those are the three kind of moments that Putin points out. Those were the turning points of Russian foreign policy. Once those things happened, we understood that it was never in the U.S.'s or NATO's intention to 
to really incorporate us into this brotherhood of nations. And I think that there's some truth to that. Um, oh, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I think that that is true. And I do think sincerely that, that the Bush administration mm-hmm. saw Putin as kind of a young protege, tried to take him on as a stooge for a while. But the thing is that Putin, as he points out, you know, I am the leader of the biggest country in the world. And if Russia were to join NATO, that would have been a competing power in the NATO alliance for the United States, which the United States, you know, obviously dominates the NATO alliance. And so it wasn't in the interest of the U.S. to incorporate Russia into NATO. And I think that that's true. Um, As far as the denazification thing goes, it's kind of a. A, a history that is kind of unravels in the same well do you want to explain what that means for people that didn't watch the interview yeah there's a so again as i said there's there's multiple um uh, objectives i guess that putin claims he has in ukraine uh one of them is protecting russian peoples in what is present-day ukraine particularly on the eastern part of the uh Dnieper river which is has been historically, uh, ethnically Russian speaking. Um, And the other one is denazification. Um, In the Second World War, as the Nazis marched through Ukraine, there were some Ukrainian nationalists who were willing to collaborate with the Nazis. Uh, They did so because they were anti-socialist, they were anti-capitalist, anti-Stalinist, and they thought that allying themselves with Nazi Germany was a better way of of asserting their national sovereignty. The the fact is that the Nazis really mistreated Ukrainians, saw them as a lesser people, but the Ukrainians couldn't really understand that and expect that from the beginning. But nevertheless, there were people, and I'm sure that your listeners know, have heard the name uh, Stepan Bandera, Mm-hmm. for example, who led this initiative of collaboration with the Nazis. And Bandera is hailed as a hero of Ukrainian nationalism. There are monuments for Bandera in Ukraine uh, as somebody that fought for Ukrainian independence against the Soviet Union and kind of ignore the, the Nazi collaborating aspect of it. And um, so for Putin, There's a point in the interview where he says, if Ukrainians want national sovereignty and they want to be their own country, fine by me. But as long as it's built on Nazism, that's not going to stand. And he says, the rest of the world has outlawed Nazism, right? We we actively do not allow it to exist in our cultural sphere. But why is it okay for Ukraine, he says. And I think that he does have, again, a point there. But I think it's a little stretched um, because, again, Bandera is seen as this national hero. The majority of Ukrainians did not support the Nazis as they came through. These were mostly Ukrainian bourgeois um, or the remnants of U- Ukraine's bourgeois population that supported the Nazis. Um, and so, again, kind of stretching the truth is kind of simplified version of, of history. But basically, the construction and and now we're fast forwarding to the 90s when the soviet union collapsed you had the disintegration of the country into various different states one of them being ukraine uh, kazakhstan georgia etc and you have to understand that when these countries become newly independent they have to reconstruct national narratives and those national narratives have to be anti-soviet and by extension, anti-Soviet means anti-Russian, at least to the West. Mm. Um, and so, for example, Ukraine is a is a really indicative example. And I have a friend that's um, been working on a dissertation on this topic. In the uh, 1960s and 70s, during the whole dissident movement under Brezhnev, when certain dissidents were allowed to leave the Soviet Union, a whole bunch of uh, intelligentsia in Ukraine fled to Canada and the United States. <clears throat> that guy, that that old man that stood and um, Zelensky clapped for, he's an example of one of these Ukrainian um, uh, 
uh, what are they called? Um, diasporas, right? Diaspora, diasporic Ukrainian in Canada. A lot of them are in Canada. And throughout the 60s and 70s, they entered into Western academia and they published vehemently anti-Soviet scholarship, all of it. This is where a lot of American totalitarian narratives of the Soviet Union come from. They come from these Ukrainian diasporic um, historians that really came out of the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. and, and they were young when they started doing it. Well, when the 1990s came and the Soviet Union collapsed and these countries had to make new national narratives, uh, Ukraine invited these people back to Ukraine to rewrite the textbooks of a national Ukraine. Wow. So naturally, you had all of these very anti-Soviet narratives. And as I said, anti-Soviet, by extension, anti-Russian. And there are cases where they made these new textbooks and they would bring them to schools in rural Ukraine and give them to the teachers. And the teachers would say, this isn't what I've been teaching for the past 30 years. This is different. I don't want to teach this, but they're forced to teach it as a way of constructing that new Ukrainian uh, nationalism. And this happens not just in Ukraine, it happens pretty much everywhere. And it, it's actively happening more, I think, intensely right now in Georgia than anywhere else. Um, because Georgia is also one of those countries that is half of the population is sympathetic to the European Union, half of it is nostalgic for the Soviet Union, that there's a lot of tensions that are playing out in Georgia right now. Um, but Ukraine, it happened more thoroughly. And so as a way of creating this, recreating this uh, Ukrainian national narrative, figures like Bandera were uh, resuscitated, right? Out of, the, out of the graveyard of history where the Soviet Union had buried him, right? But he's brought back up as this national hero, this kind of um, genesis of, of Ukrainian nationalism and hailed as a hero. And as I said, that Ukrainian nationalism by definition has to be anti-Soviet and by extension anti-Russian. And that means that um, these Ukrainian patriots become vehemently anti-Russian. And according to Putin, Nazified. They are siding with people like Bandera who were Nazi sympathizers and therefore Nazified. And that's what he means when he says, if Ukrainians want independence, they want sovereignty, fine. But so long as it's built on neo-Nazism, we're not going to allow that. Again, there's some basis to all of this. But is it is it exactly as Putin is saying? Is everybody in Ukraine a Nazi? No. And you can look at literally any other post-Soviet state, Bulgaria, Georgia, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, with the exception of the Baltic states, you know, screw them. Um, you can look at any other of these states and you'll see that so long as they're not bothered by Russia, so long as they have good relations with Russia, the majority of the population is nostalgic for the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. They miss it. It's these countries that have become victims of Russian aggression, Ukraine and Georgia, where the anti-Russian sentiment really builds up. And so it's kind of this like cyclical process that I think Putin is is leaving out. The Nazification of Ukraine in the 1990s, I don't think would have become as powerful as it did if it weren't for the events that happened um, in 2008 and then 2014, the invasion of Crimea and Maidan. Mm -hmm. um, and that's my sort of take on that part. So this is a super chat from earlier in the show. Ken, uh, thank you very much for the super chat. We appreciate it. For this month, it'll be called Reparations. Maybe we'll get more of them. Uh, I agree. Americans need to hear Putin, as we said earlier in the show, that uh, it is good for him to air out how he feels so we have an understanding of what he thinks. But at the same time, the more we hear and see Zelensky, the corrupted he becomes... And the more he's exposed, no? What do you think? Do you think Zelensky's being exposed as a bit of a, a crony? An American I, crony? Yeah, I mean, I've seen like the leftist memes that are like, you know, they put the clown makeup on Zelensky. And, you know, to us, to people on the left, um, 
we are, of course, increasingly seeing him as a as a Western stooge. I don't want to say a puppet because he was popularly elected, but he's a stooge, right? They they have celeb they have created the celebrity in chief out of Zelensky. Um, but I think that I still think that the majority of Americans sympathize with him as a country as a leader who is leading his country uh, violent, uh, uh, valiantly through war and Russian aggression, right? And these are mostly older Americans, older people in the West who still kind of wear these Cold War glasses of seeing Russia as the evil empire. And so, you know, anybody who is standing up in the face of Russia is a hero. And I think um, that that kind of view is precisely what I think Tucker Carlson was trying to problematize and by doing the interview. Of course, no one's ever going to believe it because it's Tucker Carlson, right? If you had, I don't know, who's the guy that does Channel 5 News? Oh, <laughs> that kid. Maybe if you had maybe if you had him interview Putin, people would have believed the, the authenticity of it a little bit more. There's something sincere about that kid, as weird and druggy as he comes off. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um... Tucker Carlson again. The whole, you know, I did. There's, it all felt like Kate Fabe to me. Yeah. You know, I need to launch this channel. Um, I'm a star over here, and we're gonna make it look like I'm the most, you know, doing the most dangerous thing ever. I'm, I'm in the jungles of Da Nang right now. You know. Yeah. Who was that news anchor? I think it was MSNBC who said that he was like. You know, in the throes of battle, when he was reporting in um, a hotel or something, he was like, yeah, he said that he yeah. was reporting in the middle of battle in like, I don't remember where where it was. It was somewhere in the Middle East. And then he just found out that like that was none of that was true. He was just like sitting comfortably in his hotel. A lot of people. I mean, first of all, we don't really have that many foreign correspondents like we used to because news desks are not what they used to be right journalism to a certain degree isn't what it used to be um the idea of the guy reading the news as a journalist or a reporter i think is a problem yeah and looking at someone like tucker carlson or anyone that goes out like that as anything more than just a guy reading the news um it's by the time you get televised news and people reading you the newspaper and you thinking that these news readers are journalists, especially the ones that don't put stories together. Yeah. Cause there are people that actually have to put stories together. I mean, yeah. I, 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 um, you know, some of your listeners are going to maybe be mad at me here, but I still maintain that there are every once in a while, good pieces of journalism that come out from like the New York times, for example, it's just not any of their political reporting. It's like when they report on the crumbling infrastructure of the United States through the lens of like increasing flooding, like that's good reporting. Yeah. Uh, and I, I stand by that. I don't like New York times. I don't subscribe to it, but there, there is such thing. You can still see glimmers of good reporting here, but when it comes to, you know, these highly politicized geopolitical feuds, such as what's going on in Ukraine, a lot of it is just disinformation in in bad faith reporting, right? Reporting based on on money and where the they're courtiers, they're courtiers to power, right? A lot of yeah. these people, especially when you get to to D.C. But what's frustrating is how people want to take a, a strong stance on hating entire publications. And you have to ask the question, like, do you read the whole newspaper? Like, what are you reading? Are you just reading headlines? What are you reading? What are you interested in? Are you interested in journalism? Are you interested in world affairs? Are you interested in being right? Yeah. You know, because I read several papers that I don't agree with a ton of things they say. You know, me and Varn had a whole segment of a show where we talked about how we both subscribe to a Business Insider because some of the things they say about finance you're not going to hear in major publications. They say the quiet part out loud all the time. It's a lot of their stuff is masked and, you know, pro-capitalist bullshit. But. Yeah. I, I think that that framing the interview in that way was good. I think it's good for Tucker Carlson's listeners to hear 
the media that you watch is corrupt. Yeah, that's true. I agree. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. We on the left have been saying that for a long time, right? Um, but again, is Tucker Carlson the right person to interview someone like Putin? No. No, but you know, this is what we get in 2024. Deshaun, too nice. I like your name. Too nice. Too nice. Uh, <laughs> how do you feel about Alexander Mercurius? And the new Atlas talking about the Rand Corporation trying to contain Russia through NATO. I mean, I haven't read that um, personally, but uh, I do. I do think that. Look, there's a point in the interview where Putin says that he doesn't think that Russia is the biggest threat, according to the West. He, he acknowledges that. China, he says, the, the West is more threatened by China than they are by Russia. Um, and so that's where their interests lie. Um, but at the same time, I do think that he still understands NATO as, as a form of containment. I'm not sure, you know, if signaling, singling out the RAND Corporation is, is, a, is the full picture, right? I think that there's a whole bunch of corporations that are involved in strategic defense um, and the expansion of the NATO alliance that you could easily point the pick point at. My only reservation is, you know, this is the, the, the Bernie Sanders critique too, is that it's okay to frame all of your politics through corporate financing, but at a certain point, you also have to start looking at looking, you know, I, not even deeper, but related to the corporate finances, which is the, the politicking that's involved mm -hmm. in it. Um, it's not all just corporate corruption, although that is, you know, a fundamental part of it. it my oh. As we're coming up on the hour, I want to first of all, thank you so much for hanging out with us. We will be going into the champagne room where you're going to be doing your first of a series of shows about the history of Vladimir Lenin. You want to tell us a little bit about the history of Lenin? That's right. So I started this new initiative there. So Progress Publishers in the 1970s released 45 volumes of Lenin's collected works. I like for your viewers here. You can see them. Wait a minute. <laughs> you see them right there. See them all? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of books. Um, and so I, you know, I, I've poked around in them a lot and I, I use them for my own research. Um, and you're reading wanted, in Russian. You're not reading translated books. But I wanted to, um, I wanted to read them all, not just for my own, you know, torture, but because I, 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 as a historian, I try to understand sources in historical context, um, because I think that, that that is the most revealing way to understand them. And I, and I, I say this with my students, too, because, you know, I have students that are interested in philosophy and some in sociology and some in history and economics. And so I, I tell them all, like, everybody who reads Marx approaches Marx from the angle that's more comfortable to them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so as a historian, I understand Marx historically as a philosopher. You're going to, you know, emphasize the materialism of Marx as a economist. You're going to look at the political economy and try to apply it to today. As a sociologist, you're going to understand what it means for the social superstructure. Right. As a historian, I try to understand it historically. And so I'm trying to do that with Lenin as well, because he's one of those characters that you know, is all over social media, rightly praised, but also gravely misunderstood in a lot of ways. And so I've created this social media initiative. I have it, the tag under my name, Lenin in 45 volumes. It's on TikTok, Instagram, and uh, YouTube. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel. That would help a lot. I'm not on X because I fucking hate that app. I still don't understand it. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure I'm shadow banned from it. Um, <laughs> I, every time I post on X, it goes nowhere. I don't yeah, I know the feeling. I have to say something really fucking retarded. I'm going to have to take a picture of my ass and 
exactly. and then it doesn't even matter. You have to show the whole hole. Damn, really? Yeah, yeah not the cheeks. You need to show the whole, the whole, the bing bang. You got to show them the bing bang. Steve said, "Buddy, starting look like Lennon." Funny he should say that. I actually was Lennon two Halloweens ago. I'll try to find the picture, but it was pretty spot on. Uh, I'll, I'll Someone's asking, "What's the YouTube channel?" Before we bounce. It's the same thing. Uh, Lennon in 45 volumes, all separated by underscores. Um, <laughs> reminds me of the rapper in the boondocks who's impressed at Huey Reeves. <laughs> Talking about gangster. No, that's not gangster. That's just that's uh, who's the rapper that moves in next door on the boondocks? Oh, fuck is his name? I think he has the booty butt cheek song. I don't remember. Anyway, well, thank you so much. Uh, if you guys have enjoyed what you saw here, then please make sure you hit like on your way out. If you haven't done it already, please hit subscribe. We're almost at 16,000 subscribers. Oh, I, don't know yeah. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it means that I'm closer to Joe Rogan numbers. <laughs> Magnificent. Magnificent. Thank you very much, Iraq. Thank you. I can't remember it's fucking magnificent. That's that's just, it's Black History Month. It's shame on me. Shame on me. Um also, if you enjoy what we do here on TIR and want to make sure that we can continue to do it, you have the means and you feel so inclined, become a patron for as little as three dollars a month or thirty dollars for the year. That's where the patronage starts. We are going to be going into the patron-only champagne room where Alex is going to give us the synopsis from the first five volumes of Lennon. So after every five, he's going to come on in the champagne room and look more and more like Lennon every time. I'll do my best. Yeah. Until the last volume, it's a full-on Leninizing of Alex. And he's just going to do a whole show in Russian. And... uh. Maybe we'll figure out how to do subtitles for that. But until then, uh, thank you guys so much. And also, again, don't forget, tomorrow, if you're in Southern California and you want to come out and hang out with me and Ben Burgess, we'll be at the Rainbow in West Hollywood at 6 p.m. hanging out for our single divorced dudes commie Valentine's Day part two. I'll be there in spirit. Dude, you would have had so much fun. You would have so much fun. I was never married, but I do have a kid, and I'm no longer with the baby mama. So that's close enough. That counts as a divorce. That's, that's close enough. Yeah. If you know the heartache, that's close enough. Sorry. So thank you guys, and we are out.